Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Jerry, how are you doing today? I'm fine, Will. How are you? Doing great. Well, Jerry, thank you so much for hopping on. Um, I wanted to get started and just ask a quick question. Could you give us kind of a, a, bo- a brief bio and some of the big themes you're interested in? My bio or the things that I'm interested in? Because they aren't always aligned. There's always been some kind of day job, but then there's also been some a zone of writing and speaking, et cetera. So yeah. which are you more interested in? Probably what you're interested in. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in big ideas. I'm interested in kind of the state of our culture with a focus on politics and economics, but not isolated from the other subjects. I'm particularly interested in um, the sort of the biblical foundations of our social order Uh, what happens when we go off of those foundations and how to restore that. I work in markets and I have most of my life um, in one way or another, but I've always had a career that had a, you know, one on one level, I was doing something with money, uh, whether it's an accountant or, um, you know, working for an actuarial firm or later money management. And in the other area, there's a, a sort of a thought leader, scholar, media, writer thing going on. That, to me, they're integrated. Um, they're not different things. But from outside, people kind of expect you to be one thing or another or the thing. Other. Right. right. Um, and uh, I, don't, I just don't, I, those distinctions have never made a lot of sense to me. The economics, finance, politics, theology, literature, they're different subjects in school, but they're not different subjects in life. Right. That makes a lot of sense. In what ways do you think they're really connected? That makes sense. Are, are there some big central things that tie them together in your mind? Well, I think the world is connected. It's a universe, right? So uni one verse, you know, the idea of diversity. Uh, so I think this is this is the original problem in philosophy, the one and the many. And Plato said, at bottom, everything's one. Um, and Aristotle said, well, bottom, not the, the oneness is an illusion. It's not real. At, at bottom, everything's many. And if we say that the ball is red, and if we say that the sky is red, they really don't have anything in common. Um, there's not, not, no such thing as redness. So that kind of goes through Western civilization. Um, and, you know, the, the one versus the many. I think that problem is solved in the, in the Trinity both one and many at the same time. Um, And so I think that um, we tend to cut up reality because we tend to be a people whose big conversations have been driven by people who are out of the university system. And the university system, even though it's university, um, when it lost its faith foundation, it essentially became the multiversity with completely 
siloed off departments from one another. No, no unifying theme. So right. if we don't have a, so if our major, if our intellectuals are trained by institutions that don't have unifying themes, we won't have unifying themes in our conversation and we won't think in those terms. And so we'll have different groups of people huddled around different topics or different values reflecting different tribes. Um, and again, I think that's, that, I think that is the great problem of our time. I think the great problem of our time is we've seen every, all the institutions kind of shattering and it's like, well, it's great. In some ways, those institutions deserved uh, to have their credibility shattered, but without those brokering institutions, without those honest brokers, without, without them, we're now shattered into tiny little identity groups at war with one another and rebuilding a society where we're both united and also individual at the same time, I think is the great challenge of the 21st century. That's, I think that's really well put. I, I recently read that in 1960, on any, any given Tuesday, we're recording on Tuesday evening, 30% uh, of the population was watching the same TV show in the US. Right. And is it, that's just like, just completely unthinkable and like very surprising to even consider in such a short time period that has changed. What do you think like a unifying vision looks like for, for bringing everyone back together in some kind of robust way? Or is that even possible at this point? Well, I don't think it, I don't think there's a non-religious version that's possible. Um, I think that's always failed. So what, what, when we've had unifying visions, not for a thousand years, we had a unifying vision um, in, in Europe, it was Christendom. It was right. essentially Roman Catholic Christianity. Um, it had its issues, it had its problems, and that's one of the reasons it shattered, but that was a unifying vision. Um, Rome had a unifying vision, but it was built completely on bloodshed and power, right? right? It, it's, uh, we're the Romans, we're destined to rule because we can kill people better than anybody's ever been able to kill people before. Um, and if you get in our way, we'll nail you to a cross and torture you to death. But for those of you who don't get in our way, we'll take care of the pirates and there'll be bread and circuses and, you know, there'll be more trade and you'll be able to prosper and be protected and be safe. So that's one way to do it. We have the European Union, which is essentially a kind of a secular utopia. Right. It's kind of like it's kind of religious, but without any God. Right. right. And it's a Tower of Babel vision. In fact, you look at the original designs for the European Parliament. It's actually based on P Peter Bruegel's. Um, painting of the unfinished Tower of Babel. It's like, I, you may want to go back and read that story and see how it ends before yeah, exactly. you build your building that way. So what else? Uh, ethnicity, right? Right. W you know, we're the Germans. The Germans are the best. We are genetically chosen, Darwinianly chosen to rule the world. So these are the things that pull people together. Um, power and bloodshed, um, utopian dreams and, and European, European Union is already falling apart. Right. I mean, it's really, it had maybe 20 mediocre years, um, ethnicity or something big enough to pull a community together, which is something bigger than any human institution, which is God. I don't, I, so I think we, those are the choices we have now. Right now, I feel like we're shifting towards ethnicity. I feel like America is more like we're, like you've got racial identity is becoming probably the most powerful. If it's not the most powerful identi identifying characteristic, it's the most on the rise. 
Right. You know? In other words, I don't know if it's yet the biggest identifier, but it's had a, a good few years in terms of becoming the way that people identify themselves. And, and that seems to be like a, a very big problem in a big multiracial democracy like the United States. If, you know, everyone's identifying with their ethnic group. You know, it seems like it lends itself to factional politics. Yes. And that's exactly what's happening. And I think I happen to think Tom Wolfe was the greatest novelist of my generation. Um, and Bonfire I think of the Vanities. Bonfire of the Vanities on to I think his last book was Back to Blood, Back to um, Blood. which was about the I think he spotted trends earlier than anybody. And it was set in Miami. And the idea is we're going back to ethnic identity. Um, and that was, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. And that seems to be playing itself out. So we have a kind of a Black Lives Matter thing, but then we have a white grievance politics that is in response to that. Um, and then like even divisions within the ethnicities, um, right. you know, depending on, you know, if you're, if you're married to someone from a different ethnicity or people of color in competition with one another, wait, who's most victimized? And uh, so, I mean, it's, it's an ugly path and what I would say is, would tell me something, give me uh, something better than that. You have to give us something better than that. For a long time, it was 1776. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. It was essentially a kind of natural law, uh, but we don't hold these truths to be self-evident anymore. Right. Um, so that I, I don't see how that can do it. Uh, at least half the country hears the words of the Declaration of Independence, and they have a wretch reaction rather right. than a, you know, that kind of reaction. I mean, when I hear them, you know, I, I love them, but that, they're not a unifying force anymore. Right. Uh, so I just don't know anything that's ever been able to unify people other than power um, or, or ethnicity or God. So I'll take God. Yeah, it, it definitely seems like the best option. Um, yes. it's, it, it, you're living in a, a Western, you're, where you're recording right now in, in Western Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, and I'm from rural Eastern North Carolina. And now I live in a big metropole, uh, the Triangle in North Carolina. And I find when I go back home to Eastern North Carolina, there's this great urban rural divergence. Like it's just like, and it's, you know, that people talk about it and the mainstream press and the Atlantic, but I think it's still uh, they they actually underrate how big the gap has gotten, and I, I every time I go back and I I come back home, I, I just think, man, like, you know, how do we bring this these these people that have just diverged so greatly in their beliefs back together? So do you, do you think religion is the answer, or that God is the answer to to kind of reunite everyone? Well, he did it before. I mean, Rome had that idea, right? right. Um, and um, it's interesting, you know, you've heard the word pagan, right? right? What does pagan actually mean? Pagan doesn't mean non-Christian. Pagan means rural dweller. Oh, really? Because in, in early history, in early Christian history, in, in Rome, Christianity went to the cities first. Um, oh, so wow. the cities converted to Christianity, and the, it, that, that, that didn't get out to the rural areas until later. Plus, in some sense, rural areas are more conservative. They change more slowly. Right. Now, because America has a Christian heritage, what that means is cities went secular and rural stayed religious, right? Ah, but I if see. you go back to the, like, like the second century, that world is pagan. So the new thing is Christianity and the old thing is paganism. 
So the pagans are like, I don't know all this, this new God, this new, this crazy Jesus stuff. G give me the old time religion, right. you know, uh, Jupiter and, and Mars. And <laughs> so cities have always been places where the new thing happens. Um, and so the new thing can be whatever. There's a time when Christianity was the new thing. Uh, so that, that, I think that division is throughout history. So I think what you need is something that can be new and old at the same time to bring city and country together. Um, and I think this is one of the areas where a lot of, of my Christian friends and brothers have gotten this wrong because for them, Christianity is a kind of go back thing, oh, right? Go back to the old things. Right. But Christianity has always been a religion that behold, all things have been made new. It's always been kind of an, a, relig a religion out on the revolutionary edge, but keeping what's good. Right. Um, so, you know, I remember Jerry Falwell used to call his show the old time gospel hour. Um, but you read the New Testament, it's all new, 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 new. Right. You know, it's just watching uh, Max McLean's wonderful one man show of the gospel of Mark. And, um, and, you know, Jesus is talking about, you know, you can't put, you can't put new wine in old wine skins and you can't, you know, you can't use, um, uh, you know, a new patch to put on, you know, old cloth, right. new, 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 new. And the conservatives were his worst enemies, people who wanted to keep things the same. So right. I, I think that the city versus country is a proxy for new versus old um gotcha. to some degree young versus you know young versus old like right. not not old not retro but older in age and you need i think in christ um and when i even when i say christ i know people get a reaction because they're going to hear old time gospel hour southern right. angry am radio preacher right. um but um eugen rosenstock who is he the historian talks about this that there's a that there's a forward and a backward in him and there's an upward and a downward and there's a right and there's a left all these things are converging you know on him he incorporates all of those things and reconciles them in himself and so he can go around in galilee which is frontier but he can also go to jerusalem he can go to Got the it. city and he can rec recline at table. Recline at table means banquet for someone who's wealthy. He's able to move in and out of city and country. He's rich and poor. Um, he kind of transcends those classes. So if we come back to that actual historical Jesus, then he, he is kind of a broker, a mediator between the different classes. But one class has said, Jesus is mine and Jesus means white grievance, right-wing nostalgic politics. Right. And then other people say that I don't want him. Right. Um, exactly. Or some people say, no, no, he's mine. You know, he loves the foreigner. The, the Sermon on the Mount right, right. is peace. So he's got, he gave away free health care. He's dark skinned. He's mine. And the answer is he's not either of yours. You're his. And he's got a place for the nostalgic and the, he's got a place for the preserve and the move ahead he's got a place for got both it. because they both have a role um and 
I don't hear a voice of that in our culture. And if I don't hear that voice in our culture, then I don't see how we can kind of bring together these divergent groups. Yeah, that definitely someone needs to, to be talking about that. I'm curious, you wrote a book, it's very good. It's called the, uh, oh man, the, name, the Makers and the Takers, is that correct? Everyone gets that wrong. Yeah. Uh, because <laughs> there's already a phrase, the makers and the takers, right? right? And there's already a book makers and takers. So I was trying, it was a complete failure in terms of choosing a title, but I was trying to kind of play off of that. Yes, there's makers versus takers in our society. Right. But what I was trying to say is that God is, a, is the maker of everything. Ah, uh, got it. And his son is that maker in human form walking on the earth. And so when he's here on planet earth, he, as a representative of the, of the maker, he is socially associating with makers against oh, takers. But if I have to explain it that much, then it is a failure as a title. So, uh, I, I mean, I, it's my fault. I'll take full responsibility. The maker versus the takers. Got it. It's quite yeah. clever. It's quite clever. But I, oh, yeah. If I have 10 minutes to explain right, it. Yeah. Minutes, if everyone's on the show, you got it. Um, so, so I, I, I'm curious, could you talk about the book a little bit and, and the gist of the idea? Because I think it plays into, into um, a lot of what we've been talking about so far. Well, what I basically tried to do with the book is read the gospel accounts very, very carefully um, and not ignore things like place names and occupations. And then essentially take the, 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 the story of the gospels as Jesus is walking around in different places in ancient Israel and then take what we've learned in the past 20 or 30 years from biblical archaeology um, and the archaeology of bones and the archaeology of poop. We've learned a lot. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, yeah. uh, here's the book. Um, awesome. Okay. We've, we've learned a lot you know, about parasites, for example, from that. Um, and to essentially create a kind of a mental map so that when, we, when the Gospels say that Jesus went to... Capernaum, or went to Bethsaida, maybe, and then later he goes to Capernaum, and then later he goes to um, to Judea, and then to Jericho, and then to Jerusalem, and then to Bethany. We are seeing what the like the under like kind of looking through that underneath. What are the economies of of those places? What is the class structure? Um, instead of just Jesus was in a Bible sounding town and he went to the other Bible sounding town and said this, right. and then he went to another Bible sounding town because all of these places, Bethlehem had an industry every place on earth where people live and eat, there's some kind of economic base and it's right. varied throughout the world. Every place he went, there was an industry or a combination of industries. And what we learn is once you have that as a background, you can actually then when Jesus talks about things, say, oh, that makes sense. I see what's going on here. He talks differently about economics in Galilee, which was more entrepreneurial, lower taxes, more egalitarian, more decentralized um, than he does in Judea, which is more state-centered, more centralized, more of a powerful ruling class, more economically exploitative and extractive. So Galilee, to oversimplify a bit, Galilee yeah. was mostly makers. Judea was mostly takers. 
And Jesus has no confrontations over wealth at all recorded in any of the gospels in Galilee. Every single confrontation he has about wealth, rich young rulers, Zacchaeus the tax collector, money changers, all of them occur in Judea in close proximity to the ruling class with a member of the ruling class, the takers. Oh, wow. So Jesus was raised in a culture of makers, and then he goes south to Taker Town, you yeah. know, which Jerusalem was, to the capital, and he sees a, an economy built on taking wealth from people. And he gotcha. says, you are devourers of widows' houses. And they kill him because he messed with their money, because he, he called out their economics. And stuff. <laughs> right. So up north, they got mad sometimes when he said some theological stuff that, that right. they didn't like. You know, they had their different sins. They didn't like Gentiles. I mean, they were into entrepreneurship, but they didn't like, you know, being around unclean Gentiles, right? So Jesus confronts them about that. Uh, but he doesn't confront them about wealth. Why? He's right, he's right next to a city. Nazareth was close to a city called Sepphoris. They have mansions in Sepphoris. We've dug them up. So where's Jesus? You know, why is he not turning? They had a, have a bank. Why didn't he go there and turn over tables of money changers? Because it was a bank right? Because wow. it, was, it was a marketplace institution. You, you could deal with it voluntarily. But when you go down to the temple, God says, you have to go to my temple, you have to offer sacrifices. But first, you have to go to this crooked ATM operator who has a 100% upsell right. uh, when you change your pagan money into, into temple money. And that's what he attacks. So that's basically oh, wow. that's what the book is about. So, so really, it, it's, uh, it's something like, you know, there are people that, they, you know, like Jesus' father, he's a carpenter, you know, all these uh, you, you actually people that build things that make things and then there's like rent seekers there's people who you know use improper methods to kind of gain wealth and, and those yes. things are very different yes rent seekers would be you know, the, the right you know e modern economic phrase for it the uh, Zacchaeus is the tax collector he's a rent seeker the rich young ruler is a rent seeker how do I know that um well a couple of couple of reasons one it was endemic to the class um, he was a rich young ruler. That's Archon in Greek. It was a corrupt rent-seeking class. That was the nature of it. Um, later, uh, James, Jesus's brother, writes a letter, and he talks to Christians in Jerusalem, in Judea, is that interesting, who had been sort of sucking up to the ruling class, and he said, do not these rich men defraud you and drag you before the judgment seats. So James is saying, in general, the wealthy Judean ruling class is fraudulent. By the way, same Greek word that Jesus uses when he has the conversation with the rich young ruler. Let's, oh, wow. let's get into that for a second. It's really interesting. The rich young ruler, and people always skip over the fact that he's a ruler. They skip over the fact that this is in Judea. They skip over the fact that he's a ruler. And then they go right to the, you know, the bit about the camel and the eye of the needle and the rich man. Um, you know, as, as if it has nothing to do with the specific person that Jesus is talking to. He says, right. Jesus looked at him. He's talking about this man. So the, the man asks how what, what to, to be saved. Jesus says, you know, the commandments. Um, and then Jesus lists the commandments. Uh, and in Mark's gospel, he adds a commandment to the list. He says, do not defraud, apostereo. Um, that do not defraud is not part of the Ten Commandments, 
So why is Jesus listing the Ten Commandments and adding a commandment? It's already covered with thou shalt not steal and thou shalt right. not bear false witness. That's what defrauding is, stealing by bearing false witness. But Jesus kind of triples down on this with defraud. Um, and then later, Jesus's little brother writes a letter in which he says, the Judean ruling class are the people who defraud you. Um, so Jesus's confrontation with this man uh, I think the, the the explanation that it fits best with the details of the text is not because he's rich. Jesus had wealthy friends that he doesn't confront. Um, it's because he's defrauding, which is why he adds do not defraud to the list of commandments. Got it. Got it. That's that, that's super interesting. I, I love that. I love that. Um, was, was there a particular instance that that made you think like you know someone needs to write this someone needs to like kind of actually break this down is it just like a realization you had over time and, and thoughts that came together or was there any like specific moment or something like that well i've, I've been re i've been probably studying this stuff for i don't know like 30 years uh, nice. no more 40 um closer to 40 um i got a, a lot more serious about it maybe about five or six years ago but i just studied it because i wanted to study it um, because I wanted to know. I didn't have any thoughts about a book at all. Um, gotcha. I was just resistant to the idea of a book. A friend of mine who is a publisher, who was working for a publisher, came to me and said, I want you to do a book. He didn't know what topic. He said, I just want you to do a book with us. Right. And he asked me what I'm, what I'm working on. And I mentioned three topics that I had done sort of deep study right. on. And this was one of the three. And he said, yeah, that's the book. And I resisted that. Um, because in my experience, people don't seem to want things that shake them out of their comfort zone. Right. Right. So there's, there was already a conversation about Jesus and economics and it went like yeah. this, Hey, Jesus gave away free healthcare. Jesus said, be nice. Jesus said, a rich man can't go to heaven. Jesus is a socialist. Right. Okay. Here's the answer. No, he's not. He didn't really mean it. He's just talking about your heart. He's just talking about, uh, talking about spiritual things. Jesus doesn't say anything about economics. The only thing Jesus cares about is whether you have inner peace and, go, and you go to heaven. Um, e economics is silent. He's silent on the topic of economics. So we can safely essentially ignore anything Jesus says about economics, just spiritualize it away. Or like, we, like Bill Buckley used to say, well, I'll pay attention to, the, to applying the Sermon on the Mount when the kingdom comes. So you kick it to the Down, you know after the, the second way. coming right. um so the so the the left took the jesus stories about economics and turned them up to about one quarter volume and, and said see socialism and then the right panicked and said no turn it turn it turn that sound down i don't want to hear it because jesus does kind of sound socialistic if you're not paying close attention right. um and i was really dissatisfied with that conversation so what I tried to do is just in my own personal study, my wife and I just like lean in to the stereo and turn Jesus up all the way, you know, turn up to 10 or uh, spinal tap all the way up to 11, right. <laughs> even more, um, and really hear what he's saying. And if it's socialist, okay, I'll be a socialist then. Um, and what came out was something that I didn't hear anybody else saying. And it's my experience, when you have two groups of people who are in locked in a mimetic rivalry like that, right. then they can't hear another point of view. They can't right. hear something that says, you know, you're both wrong. The details 
a different picture emerges. And the right. picture that emerges is Jesus is talking about economics. Jesus is very interested in social justice. He's prophet, priest, and king. If he's a prophet, he's got to have a social justice message. Otherwise, he would be less than a prophet, right. and he's more than a prophet. But that social justice message certainly isn't the Sandinistas or Bernie or right. you know Stalin. Um, it is a decentralized order in which we're entrepreneurial, but we share. Um, so freely sharing um, out of our productive gains. And right. that, so I didn't think anyone would be interested in the book. And I didn't want to have my heart broken by putting a book out there that people would then not hear or, you know. Right. So I didn't want to do a book. And my friend just nagged me relentlessly. And so I finally wrote the book. That's and it awesome. did better than I expected. So I was wrong. Um, but it hasn't done great. And I don't think it ever will do great um, because people already have their predetermined points of view and they're looking for things that buttress that. So okay. even the people who are reading the book, they tend to be more the conservatives and like, see, Jesus isn't a socialist. Like I didn't write this book just to say Jesus isn't a socialist. <laughs> I didn't write this book to say what Jesus isn't at all. I'm not interested in what Jesus isn't. I'm interested in what he is. Um, and what I have seen is that this book has been most well-received by young people because they really are interested in a new conversation. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so I'm, so I'm grateful for that. Yeah. They really want to understand. Um, yeah. You know, and I've been, I, I found the book really interesting and, and very helpful for, the, for much the same reason. Like, I'm really curious, like, you know, everyone's saying this and like, and, and what, what's the truth? Like, what is actually going on and your story about finding and finding this, this kind of um, finding this truth is, is very similar to how Gerard found, you know, um, a lot of his ideas, because, you know, he said, you know, none of the Christian scholars wanted to look at myths because they were afraid that if they looked too closely that, you know, Christianity would be just any other myth and it just gets ignored because of that. And then all the, you know, scholars who aren't Christians are like, it's clearly a myth. Yes. It, it's very much the same kind of, um, yeah, I, I, right. It's it's Dionysus, right? That's right. sort of the standard Fraser, Golden Bow, yeah. you know, that Jesus is just another corn god, as C.S. Lewis said. Right. Uh, so, so, and the Christians were not willing to really, for the most part, take on that right. challenge. Like you said, they were afraid. Now, an example, an exception would be J.R. Tolkien, Owen Barfield, and then later C.S. Lewis. Right, because right. they were these were mythopoeic scholars, right? But it's interesting. Barfield was a was a linguist, and I don't think a Christian at this time. And he says, you know, something really weird happens to all the languages around two thousand years ago, um, where you know before that languages it's it's like um, external participation. It's kind of technical, but there's like a turning point. And then he later said, eh, something else happened two thousand years ago. Right. Um, and Tolkien is studying these myths and he's saying, wait, there's this similarity to the gospel stories. Why is that going on? They are. He had to acknowledge that these myths are similar to the gospel stories before he could then see, of course, they're similar to the gospel stories in the sense that I would put it this way. A counterfeit is similar to money. Because that's its job. It's trying exactly. to imitate it. Or a skeleton key has to be similar to the key. That these, these ancient thinkers are trying to solve the mystery of human life. And they're going to come up with things that 
really kind of are similar to the actual mystery because they have insight. So the fact that they're like converging on an account that's like the Gospels is not an argument against the truth of the Gospels. When different groups are converging on a similar set of ideas, that's usually, you know, evidence that there's something real there, even if some of them have found it imperfectly. But Gerard goes deeper, and I think Gerard did it, I think, for in some sense, him being an atheist was helpful to him, because oh, he could fully plunge into the myth, right, right? and completely, you know, debunk it without yeah. fear that he's debunking Christianity along with it. See, a lot of the, the world of Lewis and Tolkien, they don't want to debunk the pagan myths too much because they've, they've emphasized the continuity between right. the Christian story and the pagan myth. Whereas really the continuity is almost like an inversion. They're really, they're similar in some ways, but they're really unalike because the gospels are essentially taking the pagan myth and shattering it from inside. Right. Um, the, the scapegoat mechanism shattering it from inside. So Gerard could, as if he had started out as a Christian, I don't think he could have allowed himself to see it, but he starts out as an atheist. These pagan myths are all lies. Um, and then it's like, okay, now I'm going to go after the gospels. Go. Yeah, we're going after the gospels. Yes, yeah, there's going to be scapegoating. There's going to be human <laughs> sacrifice. And he gets in there and it's Mondu. You know, oh this God. is the, you know, these stories were here. 2000 years before my insights, whoever wrote these gospels knew what I think I discovered. I didn't discover. They already did it. They're unmasking the scapegoat mechanism. These are the first non-myths in, in ancient literature. Wow. Um, so, but he had to immerse himself in the detail. He had to be willing to go wherever the text took him. He had to be willing right. to sort of like you just like, all right, I'm going to slide along and wherever it goes, it goes. Um, and thank God he did, because I think he's really unlocked cultural anthropology like no one else before, except for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who are essentially chronicling Jesus himself, you know, subverting, saying, oh, all right, human sacrifice. All right, go ahead, do human sacrifice. You know, you, you can do a human, I'm going to let you sacrifice me oh boy we'll get you know we'll get the leftovers we'll take care of the romans we'll keep our jobs you know right. we'll get rid of this troublemaker Agreed. and that was the trap you know that it's like oh wait he's innocent um and on his and his disciples didn't run away i mean they did for a while but they come back they write the account he's innocent and then a resurrection he's innocent right and what that does is it completely shatters all those power structures and it it robs the scapegoat mechanism on which all ancient societies are built of its power. That it, it's, it's incredible. It's really incredible. And that, that was a really, really well put Jerry. Um, you know, I remember reading Gerard for the first time. Uh, I, the first book I read of his was I see Satan fall like lightning. I believe Me too. really, really good. It's about the new Testament. Um, I really enjoyed it. You know, how important was Gerard for you personally in your understanding of Christianity, you know, for me, it was, it was transformational, but I'm not sure, you, you know, what was your feeling on that? Um, I think I came to Gerard um, pretty late. Um, gotcha. I, I was pretty foolish about this. Um, St. Augustine's press sent me a review copy of theater of envy. Uh -huh. And I looked and said, Oh, a French intellectual, no, thanks. <laughs> 
and that's then a wise it, heuristic generally <laughs> yes in this case but not in this case but not in this case uh, so so i left it on the shelf for a long time and then i was listening to a lecture it might have been james jordan or peter lightheart in which they positively mentioned gerard and his commentary on the book of job and then they started to talk a little bit about it and i thought oh, there might be something going on here yeah. So then I kind of dug in to Gerard and again, man, you, you know, what, what a fool I was to ignore this. It really opened things up for me a lot and um, went on and read a, a, a good deal more. And I, he's given me a lot of insight, mainly personal guidance insight, more even than sort of theoretical insight, just like how to live my life. Um, and then I read uh, a book by Peter Thiel called Zero to One. And I thought, hey, I, I'm not seeing the, the word, the name Gerard here. But it feels but, very similar. Uh, it's this really feels similar. So then I interviewed Peter about that book um, and we talked about Gerard. It's like, okay, that's not my imagination. So it's like for him, yeah, but what's really going on is you know, he's essentially applying Girardianism, right. you know, to, to decisions, to making decisions and not doing loads and loads of theorizing, you know, ab about Girard. So that's kind of what Girard's meant for me. What I, I can tell you what it, what it meant for me in terms of life change is yeah, I, stopped, I stopped going on TV. Oh, really? I used to be on TV all the time, primetime TV. Yeah. You know, the cable shows where people yell at each other. I was on <laughs> three times a night. Um, and it was combat all the time. Yeah. And when I read Gerard, I, I said, oh, I see what's going on here. They're, 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 they're monetizing mimetic rivalry. Right. And I saw ways in which it was distorting my own thinking. Um, and I'm an economist. That's my day job. Yeah. And I had been kind of optimistic from about 2002. I was taking the optimistic side of the economy, 2001, because it and turned out to be right, right? Markets yeah. did well, the economy did well. And so I kind of got slated as the bull market guy or the economic optimist guy. So I was yeah. on speed dial to go on and say the economy is doing well. And that right. was the mimetic rivalry thing, right? Like I was supposed to go up against the, the bear. bear gonna... Yeah, right, bull versus bear. Um, and I was on CNBC and um, a lot on primetime. And they actually, they, they had this graphic, I think they invented it, I think for me, where <laughs> like we'd start to debate and then these like these two boxing gloves would come together <laughs> with a noise, like every time we got started. So uh, that's, that was like the model. I was supposed to punch the other guy and he was supposed to punch me and I'm good at punching. Um, and, but what, what happened is I got locked into that. And so I was slower to see the problems in 2007 than I should have been if I were just data driven. And I looked at that and I thought, why did, I mean, others were later. Okay. But I still was later than I was later than I should have been. And I looked at that and I said, why did I miss that? Because I was doing a lot of work with data. I should have seen it. Um, I didn't see it until like late 2007 um, or like September, maybe. And I realized it was mimetic rivalry. Oh, wow. It had distorted my thinking. My job was to be the symmetrical answer, right? Then Obama becomes president and then conservative media doesn't want optimism anymore. It wants pessimism. Right. Right. So Obama's president. So Fox News wants the everything's terrible all of a sudden. Right. Um, and I realized that mimetic rivalry was the model 
Right. And I struggled with this for years. Can I be, can I engage and be involved with this without falling into the mimetic rivalry? And I concluded that I really couldn't. So I oh, basically wow. got out of doing, I mean, I'll go on TV maybe like twice a year now. Yeah. Um, uh, I'll do this because <laughs> this isn't a mimetic rivalry model. Is the, right. Um, uh, but I won't, I won't do that anymore or very seldom. So that, that, that was a big change for me. Got it. That, that, that I think that's super wise. Um, and it's interesting how, you know, rivalry, like, like you said, can paint, you know, our beliefs, you know, it, and it can really occlude things, right? Because you're optimizing for something other than like the truth or something like that. Yes, you're optimizing for, th that's exactly it. You're not optimizing for truth. What are you optimizing for? You're optimizing for, first, you're optimizing for the shared goal. That's what the rivalry is about. And then you optimize for destroying the enemy right. based on earlier phases in the conflict, right? right. So, I, so you and I, want the same thing. You're, 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 Will Jarvis does a great podcast. I want to be like Will Jarvis. Okay. Well, I'm your biggest fan. Uh, so uh, uh, wait a minute, hold on a second. Well, then I don't want to just admire you. I want to be you. I want to replace you. Right. You don't want to be replaced. So now we're in a fight, right? Okay. So we're in that fight. And I do something to you and you do something to me and I do something to you and you do something to me. And at some point we forget what it was originally about. And we're, right. we've got this cycle, you know, of escalating verbal and then even physical violence. Like if, if, if people have had arguments, no doubt with the spouse where it's like the argument is about something, right? right? Half an hour later, the argument isn't about <laughs> the original thing. It's about 10 minutes earlier in the argument. Right. Right. My, my son, my um, son, Charlie, likes to talk about the Joyeux Noel incident in, in um, uh, uh, World War One, you know, where oh, yes. they're fighting one another. It's like, hey, it's Christmas Eve. Let's right, set right. aside our differences and sing carols. Yeah. Year one. But he said by year three or four. It's not happening. <laughs> you killed Charlie. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, you filthy crowd. You've killed Charlie. I'm going to get even. Um, so the argument becomes a, about, about the, uh, about the argument. So it, so you so that's not, you're not selecting for truth anymore. It's occluding you. It's blinding right. you. Uh, Gerard says that your, that your clarity of sight is actually what blinds you. You can see your enemy's flaws so well uh, that you can't see anything else. Oh, that's beautifully put. Yeah. It's well, actually the analogy is Jesus. Right, I'm, I'm stealing this from Matthew seven. Um, so this is a little, this is a little bit of a challenge, but I want to try this. Okay. Yeah. So let's say that um, you've got a speck in your eye and I'm trying to take the speck out of your eye. So let's just think about that. That's become a dead metaphor to us. Right. Right. Like almost all the gospel texts. Oh, this is the part where he says the thing about the speck, <laughs> but, but let's think about this. So if, if I'm trying to take the speck out of your eye, a couple of things are going on. One, you've got a flaw. Right. Two, I want to fix your flaw. But what is your flaw? Bad breath, hunchback, um, you know, heartbreak of psoriasis? No. What is it? it it's, I, I've got a problem with your organ of perception. Uh. See, if, if, if I think you've got a speck in your eye, what I think is that you're not seeing things right. 
Right. See? Okay. That's really good. So if I'm in here taking the speck out of your eye, what are you seeing? You're seeing me. Right. Right? So wh what do I think you're not seeing right? That's I think you're not seeing me right. So if I'm taking the speck out of your eye, well, I mean, the metaphor strongly suggests I have a problem with your perception. I have a problem with the way you see something. And since I'm the one in your face trying to get the speck out, here I am in deep in something to the podcast. People say you should never get this close. <laughs> All you're seeing is me. So I have a problem with the way you see me. Okay. Um, so I'm reaching in here to fix you, right? right. I'm going to fix you. But the problem is I'm looking at your speck. I'm focusing on your flaw. The only thing I can see is your flaw. That's it. That's the only I've thing. magnified your flaw. And so having magnified your flaw, I'm now obsessed with it and blinded. The, the, the plank in my eye is the magnified speck in your eye. Uh -huh. See what I mean? Yep, absolutely. Because if you look really close at someone's eyes, what do you see? You see a reflection. Right. If I looked really close in your eyes, I would see my face. And if you've got a speck, I would see my face distorted. Right? So right. I think this is, and we're all, all day, every day, we're just staring at each other's specks. And you watch Fox <laughs> News. Fox News is playing footage of CNN talking about Fox News. Right. <laughs> and CNN is playing footage of Fox News talking about CNN. It's Matthew 7. It's just that spec. I, I don't like the way that you think of me. I don't like the right. way you see me. I've got to fix you because the only thing I can see, I can't see you. I, the only thing I can see is your distorted view of me. And it's like some kind of like infinity mirror from hell. Um, and it, you know, what does Jesus say? Step back here. Stop looking at his spec. Right. It's not important. Exactly. You know, and then if you stop looking at his spec, then your, your, your plank is gone. Right. If you don't obsess over his flaw, you might actually make some progress. Right. But if I'm, if I mean, all conservative news all day, every day, liberals are hypocrites, liberals are hypocrites, and liberal news all day, every day. The Trumpies are hypocrites. They say they're pro-life, but they put kids in cages and right. all day, they're just like doing moat monitoring yeah um and you know jesus gives us a way out of that but we have to give up an addiction right and it does seem like an addiction at some level because it you know i think especially in the context of christianity and christian story and jesus it's somewhat you know we can sit here in this third party perspective and understand how you know crazy this is but when you're right on top of it it's very it's so vivid you know like the conflict Yes, which is why I can't go on TV because I know I'd get called, I'd get pulled into it again. Get right back into it. Like I'm not saying that I'm cured right. um, from a medic rivalry. I'm I'm in recovery. If I can't go into the it. I can't go into the bar anymore, right? Um, right? So I mean, if you and I started an argument, I'd be right now. I'd right. I'd go. To, I'd start looking at your spec. Yeah, that's got to come out. Look at the way he, I don't like the way he looks at me. I don't like his perception right. of me. <laughs> exactly. Right? I mean, I can I can get that into that in in a moment. Um, so I think what Gerard said is that you, you first of all, be aware of the pattern. Right. Second of all, you kind of withdraw it from it and then do things that slow things down, like the rules of evidence, the laws of logic, institutions, 
right? Like when right. a mob gets going, they want to kill somebody. Okay, well, let's have a trial. And there are rules right. for trials, which is what happens in John chapter eight. The mob wanted to kill the woman. So what does Jesus do? Let's have a trial. Wait, what? Yeah, let's have a trial. Right. Um, you know, because when you say, well, he was, was out to sin, cast the first stone, that is trial stuff. The witnesses were the ones who were supposed to cast the first stone. Gotcha. So he's, he's saying, okay, you want to try. This isn't a trial. You're saying you want, well, Moses says we should kill someone like this. But Moses says you should have a trial. Right. So you want to you want to do Moses? Let's do Moses. Let's have our witnesses. Oh, by the way, without sin, because under the under the Torah and some of the traditions, if you were yourself guilty of a serious sin, then you couldn't be a witness in a trial oh. like this. So he's saying, okay, I let's have the call for witnesses. We're gonna, you know, we do that now with juries. Let's right. choose the we choose the right jurors. So I want everybody who's not guilty of a serious sin to step forward so that you can be the witnesses who cast the first stone. So he Jesus taps into legal institutions and traditions that still had some respect to slow things down. And then it's like, oh, wait, this isn't gonna work. Um, we're not they gonna be able to, to kill realize. this woman. Yeah, we're right. all we're thieves and adulterers. We can't, <laughs> and everybody knows it. So we can't right. really be witnesses. They're, they're now, oh, wait a minute. You're talking about my sins now. Right. Um, like if I pick up a stone, someone's going to say, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute, Nathaniel. I know you. I know the things that you've done. You can't be a witness. Right. You know, uh, so, um, so I think uh, those institutions slow us down and help weaken the scapegoat mechanism. But in the end, the thing that really destroys the scapegoat mechanism is to know that Jesus was murdered under the scapegoat mechanism and that he was the perfect man. Um, and therefore the scapegoat mechanism, its credibility is utterly destroyed. Right. It, it doesn't, if you know about it, it just in some sense just does not work as well. Although it almost feels like we, we still try, it, like we still try, maybe we can't help from, but for trying, I, I don't know. Like in the modern world. Can well, what, Ger what Gerard said is that we killed the old pagan scapegoat mechanism. Right. Um, and now what we have is, what's he call it? Um, ultra Christianity. Oh, interesting. So progressivism is ultra Christianity. So in the, in the ancient world, if someone said, hey, wait a minute, I'm a scapegoat. Yeah. The Roman soldier would say, Damn right you are. <laughs> yeah, buddy. Here we go. Yeah. All right. Good. I'm, I'm glad we've settled that. All right. Get the get the hammer. Get the nails. Right. right. Um, but because of the power of the gospel story, what to be identified as a scapegoat or a victim was now to be to be declared innocent. We we sided with the gospels, siding with innocent victims. But in the modern form, that becomes not the victim might be innocent. That becomes victims are always innocent, which becomes victims are by the status of being victims automatically morally superior, which becomes I'm, a, I'm more of a victim than you are. Give me the victim power. Um, and so then what Gerard says is that we scapegoat, and, and Teal says this as well, we scapegoat the scapegoaters. So wow. everyone's going around saying, I'm a scapegoat. You're right. And right. which means, which means I'm the good, I'm the goody. Right. And so for progressivism, like the, the ultimate evil is Trump. So I'm, I'm the, and clearly 
Trump tried to scapegoat immigrants. There's no doubt about it, but it didn't succeed. Instead, what right. happens is, look, he's scapegoating immigrants. So we're going to scapegoat him scapegoat on behalf the of, the, of the victims. Right. So what right. Gerard says is we won't but we won't kill anybody. So we, can, we don't have the we don't have the mechanism that we had in the ancient world. In the ancient world, we'd kill the Mexicans. Right. Like right? it would actually happen. Like we, it would actually and, happen. You know. And then there'd be, oh, is, now everything's peaceful. Right. Right. And then we would turn them into gods. Um, and then every year we would reenact the killing of the Mexicans. Yeah. Um, and we'd, we, we would say they were guilty. They did all these right, terrible right. things. things. We, we would lie right. about them. Right. Yeah. Um, so that in the ancient or maybe in the other side, you know, you would kill Trump. You know, he's an evil Nazi. We've killed him. And now we can all come together. You right. know, and but but now we don't actually kill the we don't actually scapegoat. We're too Christian to kill the scapegoat. Kind of unable to so we can't purge right. that way. So we just keep keeps rolling around. So Gerard says we're Christian enough to care about victims, but we're not Christian enough to forgive. And that's where we are now. Uh at least that's what he says. And right. it sure sure looks like what I'm seeing out there now. It does seem do you think do you think we'll be able to get to forgiveness? I mean, th this is, or, or, you know, in some sense, it feels like, you know, you go on Twitter, it's just like, it, this is just going to run around forever. It just gets more and more vicious, but it's all virtual. It's not really real. You know, it's very bizarre how it's, it's like, it, it feels so real, but it's not at the same time. I, I don't know. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. Uh, and you look, look, when you look at what's any, I, I check Twitter every day. I look on the right yeah. to see who the scapegoat is. <laughs> But we never kill them. Right. So, you know, there's no, you know, we're not going to get a resolution there. <laughs> uh, someone's, someone's trending on Twitter. Some people want to kill them. Right. Right. I mean, it's almost never a good thing. Oh, you know? it's uh, so Tucker or law, because it's, Twitter is liberal, then it's a conservative right. trending on, on yeah. over there on the side who they want to, yeah. they want to kill, um, but they don't actually kill them. Um, so Twitter is like frictionless. A mimetic contagion, but no ability to complete the ritual right. through human sacrifice. I'm glad that Twitter doesn't, thank God it doesn't that. have actual kill buttons. Right. Wasn't there a Star Trek episode? You just <laughs> show someone on there and you push the button and they die. Yeah, that was over in the mirror universe. A lot of Gerard and I wonder if Roddenberry read some early Gerard, um, but any, but we don't have that. We don't have a kill right. button on Twitter. So we just like kill their reputation. Yeah. Uh, and so that just keeps going on. And Gerard was afraid that that would just go and go and go and end with nuclear warfare. I, I'm more optimistic than that. Um, I think that one of the ways to stop that process is to describe it, just like the way to stop the scapegoating process right. was to see it, understand it, describe it, and therefore be freed from it. The way to end the reverse scapegoating process is to see it, describe it, understand it, and escape from it. Makes sense. But we're mm -hmm. early in that, right? And, right? and also we're addicted to it. We really love but, it. But the pagans were addicted to blood. The pagans were addicted to killing gypsies or Jews or that old woman you know, from out of town who, who lives outside the village who does herbs. She must be a witch. I mean, they were addicted to that. Right. And Christ broke that addiction. So I think he can break this addiction too. Definitely. Definitely. It's, does the, in some sense, does this explain, do you think this explains how there's been this relative, you know, you read like 
Steven Pinker or something like better angels of our nature, there's been this relative decline in violence. Like we don't have these big wars anymore, like in world war II or, you know, the civil war, like these massive conflicts, like it, they're much less, it's all like smaller, you know, gorilla stuff and, and weird stuff. Do you think that that is some effect there? Oh, absolutely. Pinker doesn't understand it. I mean, Pinker thinks <laughs> it was the enlightenment, right? Right. Um, we, we got science and then we stopped burning witches. Yeah. Um, whereas Gerard argues, and I think historically demonstrates, no, we stopped burning witches and that's how we got science. <laughs> um, that we had to, we had to kind of get rid of the medic rivalry to some degree. We had to get rid of that old paganism and that kind of freed up cultural energy. Um, cause otherwise you're going to, you, if you scapegoat witches, then you'll scapegoat scientific innovators right. as well. Right. Cause actually they're more dangerous than witches. Witches right. don't do, witches don't actually do anything, but an entrepreneur with a great scientific idea ruins incumbent models. So, right. you know, so if you have a scapegoat mechanism, you know, the guy with a better business model gets thrown on He's the pyre the before the witch. Um, exactly. So you had to, you had to you, you stop killing witches and then you can have innovation. Stephen Pinker thinks it was just the enlightenment to say, right. well, okay, why did we get, why did we happen to get the enlightenment around the time that we get an explosion of biblical literacy? You know, we, uh, why didn't we have an enlightenment? There were people who had Stephen Pinker's philosophy in 300 BC, right? And in 100 and 100 AD, you had Lucretius, you know, yeah. who was a naturalist who didn't believe in the gods. You had Epicureans, you had Stoics who basically had a god who was the laws of the universe. You already had people with Stephen Pinker's philosophy around, right? But we didn't get any of those good things. We got them when Christ took hold in certain places. Um, and I think Christianity tried to free itself, it really freed itself more from its, from its paganism. Now, it's interesting, um, in an interview I did recently with, uh, with Thiel, he said, you know, he mentioned Pinker, and he said, you know, the violence is declining. He said, but we have 10,000 nuclear missiles pointed at one another. <laughs> so the, the, the Pinker story about being post-violence can't be the whole story. Because and I think Peter's right about that. And, and we out. have less kinetic violence, but we have massively more potential violence. Right. And, and that's really concerning. Like you, maybe you smooth out all the volatility, but then when things do blow, blow up, they do so in a very magnificent and terrible manner. And um, that's what that's what Gerard said in, I think his last book, Battling to the End. He was pointing seriously to the idea that essentially what we see in the book of Revelation and what we see in Matthew 24 is essentially once the gospel, it can no longer get rid of the scapegoat mechanism because we're in a kind of scapegoating the scapegoaters where we have mimetic violence without the reset mechanism of human sacrifice that humanity has, not has to, but looks like it's going to destroy itself probably through nuclear warfare. Right. Again, that's not where I come down. I'm, I'm going to differ with the master on this one. I think yeah. that, that that can be avoided but we don't avoid it by saying every every day in every way, Western civilization is getting better and better um, because those missiles can do more damage than, you know, all of those petty wars of the, what do you call them, petty wars of the princes in the Middle Ages. Right. Uh, I'm glad we got rid of those, but uh, we have great potential violence out there. Definitely. Yeah, it, it, the potential is, is very... Very scary. And, and I think the scariest thing about it is, is no one really talks about it very much. No, no one's talking about the nukes. Yeah. And, um, you go back like the 1950s and 1960s, there was talk about them. Yeah. 
right? But now it's, I don't know why we don't talk about them because we haven't gotten rid of any of them. We still have right. them. They can still destroy the world. Um, so maybe we should talk about the, yes. I think it's probably because we're so caught up in our more petty mimetic rivalries. We're, we're right. you know, we're, we don't want to talk about the nukes. We want to talk about really, really important stuff like whether Simone Belisle's is a weakling right. for not participating in an Olympic event. Right. That's, I mean, we got to deal with the real stuff. Like the really know, important, important things really here. Important stuff, right. yeah. <laughs> no doubt. No doubt. Um, well, Jerry, we're, we're coming up to the top of the hour. Um, I want to have you on again, if, if you're willing. I, I've got a, a boatload more questions. I, I've really learned a lot today and I, I really appreciate it. Um, it's my pleasure. Do, do you have any parting thoughts and, and where should people get started with, uh, you know, your work and then, and, and maybe Gerard too, if you have any pointers. Well, I, I think you're, I think you started in the right place. I saw Satan fall like lightning is, great. I think that's the, that's the great, that's the book to start with. Um, I found um, Cynthia Haven's new collection of uh, interviews with Gerard. Oh yeah. Um, to be very helpful. Now she did two books and I mix up the titles, but I think it's Rene Girard, Prophet of Envy. Um, but there's also one, that, I don't can't remember whether that's the biography or not, but Cynthia Haven, H-A-V-E-N, she has uh, two good books on it. I think zero to one, once you get the Girardian model, then you can see zero to one essentially as applied uh, Girardianism. I wrote an obituary for Girard um, oh, really? for Forbes. Um, so you just go Forbes.com. Um, and you can read that obituary. Uh, it's like, I don't know, it's about 2000 words. So it's kind of starts as though you have no knowledge of Gerard. Um, so in terms of following my work, I don't have like a personal brand thing right. to do, um, but I'm easy to reach on social media. And if people, when people have real questions, not social media, mimetic <laughs> conflict, I'll block you quick. Um, who has time and energy? Um, but for like real conversations, I try to actually answer people's questions on Facebook or LinkedIn or even the dreaded Twitter. Um, so just remember B-O-W-Y-E-R. I would be remiss. My wife is pointing to this. Nice. This, now this is like uh, Gerard is kind of in here, but not in here. I didn't want to make this book about Gerard because then that's like a whole thing. Like someone says, well, I read about him and he's no good. He's a baddie, right? And then you have yeah, to kind of right, get right. through. It's like, oh, you're talking about something he said in the 60s that, uh, that he, you know, you know, that he disavowed or right. this is something that someone said he said. And there's all this mimetic rivalry around Gerard because there's a left Gerard group, which is the early Gerard group. And the Gerard like, is like, that. wait a minute, that's not me. Right. Um, so I kind of left Gerard out in terms of, I think I mentioned the acknowledgements, uh, but you can, anyone who understands the Girardian model when they read this book will see obviously the, the influence where Jesus is attacked by the Sadducees and Pharisees, right? So these two groups are in mimetic rivalry with one another, right? They hate each other. They disagree about everything except one thing. There's one thing they can agree on. This Jesus of Nazareth has to die. Right, that's the one thing they agreed on, and it's the most wrong thing <laughs> that could ever have done. That could have ever have done, and that's the nature of things. Also, I have my own um, podcast, Meeting of Minds, with. It's Jerry excellent, Boyer. by the way. Oh, thank you. We'll, we'll plug link in uh, in the show. All right. Now. Well, I appreciate that. So those are the ways to interact. And Will, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you very much for your thoughtful questions. Awesome. Thank you, Jerry. 
Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives.